0: I would ask you to turn in your Bibles again this morning to the 20th chapter of the Gospel according to John, John chapter 20. We're moving along in our study in the book of John and we're going to soon run out of passages, but we still have a few weeks before that occurs. We're going to come this morning to this section found in chapter 20, verse 11, and I'm going to read this portion down to verse 18. So please follow with me in your Bibles. As we read, John 20, beginning with verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Jesus said to her, "Mary." She turned and said to him, in Aramaic. I don't know what says Aramaic. It's word in Hebrew. The word in the Greek is, is Hebrew. She spoke in Hebrew. I know they spoke Aramaic in the ancient world, but uh, I do believe this might be uh, a Hebrew word, Rabbi. Uh, we get the word Rabbi from this, and it's rabbi, which uh, John tells us means teacher, but actually it, it means more, my teacher. There's a a personal element to this title of rabbi, rabbi or rabbini, my teacher. Just like uh, Thomas in the next section says, my Lord and my God, Mary looks at Jesus and says, my teacher. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the resurrection narrative as it began in chapter 20 and verse 1. We looked at the character of Mary Magdalene, highlighting the reality of her love. We also looked at Peter and saw that in him, the quality of hope was brimming and abounding. And then in John, there was faith. It's not just something we could assume, but something that is actually stated. That uh, John looked into the tomb and uh, uh, he believed, uh, we are told. And so we have these three qualities, or these three graces, these what are oftentimes called the theological graces. And they're called the theological graces because they come from God. He gives love, He gives hope, He gives faith. And they also focus in upon God. So they come from Him and they return to God in terms of our expressions towards Him of love, of faith, and of hope. And then each of these Theological graces also unite in another singular thing, in that all of these theological graces brings Jesus to them, and brings them to Jesus. And so we have the appearances of Jesus to these individuals whose graces and whose heart expressed these qualities of love, of hope, and of faith And we read about Jesus' appearance first to the loving Mary in verses 11 to verse 18. And then in the next paragraph, uh, we see how Jesus appears... Now, to the rest of the disciples, minus Thomas, we'll give our understanding to Thomas and how he fits in with his manifest unbelief that he uh, expresses, and yet Jesus still comes to him, and we'll try to figure that one out as we get to that point. But among the disciples, of course, was Peter, and it was John. And so, uh, hopeful Peter and uh, faithful John, uh, Jesus comes to them in the subsequent narrative. But for this morning, we want to look at the account that John gives of Jesus' appearance to Mary we read about the disciples Peter and John in verse 10 it says then the disciples these disciples Peter and John went back to their homes in a contrast we read but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb Mary remained at the tomb I find it interesting, when the Apostle Paul chronicles the witnesses of the resurrection, he omits the women, even though they're the ones first mentioned in the Gospels. They're the ones who were at the tomb um, on the day of his crucifixion, and then went home for the Sabbath day, and then returned early in the morning. And they were the ones who first saw Jesus in the Matthew's Gospel they come to the tomb and they see that the stone is rolled away and they go to talk to the apostles and Jesus meets them on the way and so he met the other women along the, on the way but apparently before he got to them as they're moving in the other direction he meets Mary right at the tomb Mary, she stayed to linger she stayed to mourn she stayed to weep there's still the outpouring of her loving heart towards her Lord Whom she does not know where he is. She's not yet understanding his resurrection as a reality. It appears that the male disciples understood this. They heard the words of Jesus again and again speaking of his resurrection. And apparently they had come to believe, again not so much based upon the scriptures that spoke of his resurrection, but his, his very words promising that the third day he would rise again. But Mary had not yet come to that. But yet her heart is still filled with an ardent love to the Lord and a concern for where is His body. And it's here, in this portion of Scripture, she comes to see where Jesus' body is. She comes to see Jesus Himself. He appears to Mary. And it's a section of Scripture that's notable. For a variety of reasons, and um, I've kind of picked up on four things I want to state to you this morning about this passage. Uh, I want to first of all say something about how the materials of this passage are arranged by John, the Gospel writer. So that's the first thing we're going to do. We're going to look at arrangement. How the words of this section are arranged, and what principles uh, have come into how John expresses these things. And then secondly, we want to look at the angels. You know I'm going to deal with A's this morning. We began with arrangement, and now we're going to look at the angels, the two angels that sit in the tomb at the head and at the feet, uh, where Jesus' body had lain. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the appearance of Jesus itself, that Jesus comes and appears to Mary. And then we're going to say something about the way she goes and announces uh, what she has seen and heard from Jesus uh, to the disciples. So we have arrangement, angels, appearance, and announcement. Those four things that we're going to look at, God willing, this morning. First of all, the arrangement of the materials that we find in this section. And to me it's always interesting when you find expressions and words and allusions that refer to other portions of the Word of God. And in my thinking through this passage and my reflecting upon its words and its allusions, it seems to me, there's a lot here, very reminiscent of what you find in the very first chapter of this gospel where Jesus began his public ministry and where we read about John's ministry in the Jordan and the way in which Jesus called his first disciples. And I want to just tell you some things that are common about those two sections, John 1 and uh, John chapter 20. Um, First of all, it's in John 1 that we have the first mention of angels in this passage and the only mention of angels in the book until you get to chapter 20. It's almost as if uh, you have angels that begin the narrative and angels that end the narrative even though the angels come at the end of chapter 1 when uh, Jesus says to Nathanael you were impressed by the fact that I could tell you uh, where you were under the tree if that's something that you marvel at um, you will see the angels of heaven ascending and descending upon the Son of Man you'll see something of my own identity in the fact that heaven has come to earth in my person And the very inhabitants of the heavenly places, the angels that stand at the right hand of God as those ministering spirits, sent forth by God to do his will and to obey his words. Um, They who Jacob saw in the vision of that ladder going from heaven to earth in chapter 28 of the book of Genesis, that's replicated in me. How do you get heaven to earth and earth to heaven? It's in me. I'm the heavenly sent Son of God. Come to earth for the very purpose of bringing a people into the heavenly realms. Bringing people into the realm of the knowledge of and love of and service of the true and the living God. And so the whole ministry of Jesus is to be seen. Even though we don't mention, mention of angels in all the middle yet no doubt there were presence of angels in much that Jesus did, some of the other gospels tell us about this, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, after the temptations of the devil, the angels came Luke tells us to minister to him I think we read about angels also in the garden of Gethsemane, there are the expression of angelic uh, uh, forces or servants that came for express purposes and the design of God uh, for the work that Jesus came into the world to do And he could have had access to much more. Remember how he told his disciples when they sought to uh, uh, raise up uh, an army uh, to fight his fight for him. He says, Do you not know that I am able not just to enlist 12 disciples to my aid, I could call the Father, and he would send 12 legion of angels. Jesus was in touch with the realm of spiritual reality in which angels play a part in the worship and service of the living and true God. And uh, we see that this whole ministry is uh, bracketed by an appearance or the speaking about angels in chapter 1 and the appearance of these angels in chapter uh, 20. But that wouldn't be sufficient to say there's a connection between chapter 1 and chapter 20, but there's other things as well. Uh, The next thing we see is that it's in chapter 1 that Jesus asked two disciples who were seeking him. Remember John said, Behold the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. And two of the disciples, and one of them was the disciples whom Jesus loved, John himself, who comes to Jesus. I think Peter was the other one. And um, Jesus um, says to them, What are you seeking? What are you seeking? And the language is... Just a basic replication, just a change of the pronoun. Whom are you seeking? Not just what are you seeking, but whom are you seeking? But it's the very same word, the very same construction. Whom are you seeking? Jesus asked that question to these first disciples in chapter 1. He asked this same question of Mary here in chapter 20. And then you have the interesting fact that When John the Baptist told these early disciples of Jesus uh, um, about Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away or bears away the sin of the world. There's the language of bearing away. And we find the language of bearing away also in Mary's words. She's there for the express purpose of... Of bearing away the body from a place of unsafety to safety. Whatever they've done with this body, wherever they've taken him, his body could be in peril. Honors done to him may not be done. And she's there to be the one who's gonna save Jesus. She's gonna bear away his body to a place of safety and security. She's gonna rescue the body. Great desire. God has that matter in hand. In fact, He has something of greater importance to bear away. And that's the sin of the world. Jesus, in His own body, has done that very work as the Lamb of God, to bear away the sin of the world. So you have language of angels. You have the language of whom are you seeking. You have the language of the bearing away the sin of the world. And then you also have the design of the apostles in the first chapter As they seek Jesus, they ask Him the question, where are you staying? Where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see. Come and see. And He brings them to the place where He is staying, and they stayed with Him into the late hours of the afternoon. In other words, their intention was that where He went, they would go. They would be in His presence. And they were wrapped with attention and love and delight and desire to be in the presence of this Jesus, and I think that's what's behind Mary's own attitude towards Jesus. When she hears him say, "Mary," that she turns and says, "Rabbi, my teacher," and then she approaches Jesus. We're not told did she grab hold of him, did she hug him? And if she did, it was to hang on to him for life, because Jesus says, "Do not cling to me." I'm not staying. told the initial disciples, stay. See where I'm staying. Stay along with me. This is in direct contrast to what's happening here. This appearance of Jesus is not to stay with them. It's not to stay at all. He says, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father. Go and tell my disciples, I'm not staying. I'm not staying. There's not going to be a long-term continuance of appearances I'm going to make with you. Forty days in and out among the disciples. And then he goes off into heaven. And the Holy Spirit comes in his place. The Holy Spirit comes as another comforter to be with them, to mediate Jesus and his presence with them. They're going to know Jesus' presence in a different way than they knew it at the outset when they come to the end of his ministry. So I don't know if I've validated the point, but I think the language itself and the concerns of chapter 1 do mirror the concerns of chapter 20. What accounts for this? What accounts for so many comparisons, so many contrasts with chapter 1? And I think the answer may be found in the way that John, again, not just arranges chapter 1 and chapter 20, but it's the way he arranges his gospel itself. Remember how the Gospel of John begins? It begins in the beginning. In the beginning. What else starts that way? Well, the Bible does, right? The book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, John takes you behind the beginning. Takes you into the deep recesses of eternity. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he speaks to the issue of Jesus' pre-existence. That Jesus was the creator of all things. And he, he, that uh, through Him He made all things. Without Him there was not anything made that was made. In Him was light. God said, let there be light, and there was light, light, as the light was the life of men. God who breathed into the nostrils of Adam and Eve, the breath of life. There's all this creation language that's used in chapter 1. But you know, there's not just all this creation language, the replicating of Genesis 1. But there's also the creation days that also seem to get replicated. You know, I've heard this observation made many, many times. And what I've tried to do many, many times when I we went through John's Gospel in other times, is I've always tried to find how many days are there that John actually speaks to in the opening chapters. Because so clearly he does go through, this happened this day, and then the next day this, and then the next day that, and then the third day after that this, seems like he misses some days, and it's hard to know exactly. Are there six? Are there seven? But it does seem incomplete. It's almost like he wants to begin the gospel along the model of the book of Genesis, of the creation account. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and then with Him was light, and the light was the life of men. And then God said, evening and morning, day one. Then God did this, evening and morning, day two. Then God did this, and evening and morning, day three. And there should be something of a complete seven day creation, because the Sabbath day is important as well. But I don't think we really can argue that out. There seems to be some incom- incompleteness. You have the first day that begins with the testimony of John in verse 19, chapter 1 to verse 19, and this is the testimony of John. John denies that he's the Messiah. Is that day one? Possibly, but then it goes on to say, verse twenty-nine: the next day he saw Jesus coming. Is that day one? Possibly. That's the one first day that Jesus comes into the picture. That may be, in fact, day one. The next day Jesus saw he saw Jesus coming towards him. Said, "Behold, the Lamb of God." Then verse thirty-five: the next day, the next day. See, have a progression of days. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus and he walked by. And then, verse 43, And the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. And then, chapter 2 and verse 1, On the third day, and that be, might be the, first, the last day he spoke about, the day in the middle and then the day that Jesus came to the wedding of Cain of Galilee. And I don't know how you calculate it, whether it's three days, four days, maybe five days. It seems to me that the best guess I would have is that you have some three days that are mentioned here. The day of Jesus' first appearing and John announcing the Lamb of God. The day that he calls his first disciples is the second day. The next day that he goes to Galilee. I'm sorry, then the the, the next day is in Canaan, Galilee. At least four days where he did the first miracle. And where's the rest of the days? Well, some would reason there's other ways to make six, seven days in the early chapter. But I rather wonder if the... Completion of the, of the week is not actually found towards the end of the Gospel. It's not actually found in what we call the days of the Holy Week of Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. So if we argue that these four days that are mentioned at the beginning it took seven days for a new creation. To be forged by God. And the only way that new creation comes into existence. Is not just in noting the public ministry of Jesus. Not just noting the witness of John. Not just noting Jesus calling these disciples. And teaching these disciples. And not just noting the miracles that our Lord performed. But it was his death. And his burial. And his resurrection. That comprised the remainder of the week. And so the book is structured with a whole seven day week in which God works a new creation. I'm waiting for an amen somewhere. That's exciting, really, to read the gospel in that way, is to see that's exactly what John is doing. He's telling us that Jesus has come to bring all things new. To bring in these new realities. He speaks of a new birth. He speaks of Jesus being a new temple. In chapter 2. He speaks of new wine. He speaks of um, eventually in the book of Revelation. All things they new. Uh, a new song that the people of God sing. These new realities. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Again and again and again. He calls all these things new. Because the whole end of the thing is that, come to the end of the book of Revelation, he's making all things new. He's making all things new. And that's how John wants us to see Jesus. That's how he wants us to see his work. He wants us to see it in terms of what Jesus does, not only in his life and ministry, not only in his teaching, not only in his miracles, but through his death, burial, and resurrection, that he is making all things new. so that's the framework of the gospel itself, that's how it's arranged that's how it's structured that we see in Jesus a new creation realized and realized primarily in the reality of his death, burial and his resurrection glory and his resurrection power the second thing the passage I think would say to us, once we get past the language that's used that's so reminiscent of chapter 1 and what John may be doing in terms of presenting the resurrected Christ as the author of a new creation is that he does tell us that Mary wept, she stooped and she looked into the tomb in verse 11 and as she looked into the tomb, she doesn't go into the tomb John went into the tomb, Jesus went into the tomb in the previous paragraph Mary does not enter the tomb but she stoops and she looks into the tomb, and what she beholds was amazing. She saw two angels in white. I don't know if they had wings. You know, sometimes we think angels are pretty beautiful-looking, little cherubic faces, little you know, big cheek babies. Actually, most angelic creatures are frightening to, to behold, and um, you know, just the being clothed in white might have been a less threatening expression of angelic presence certainly in the gospels when angels appear, usually the first words out of the mouth of an angel when they appear in the presence of a a human being is fear not, fear not why? they're imposing creatures think of the seraphim or those winged creatures that were in the above the mercy seat in the holy of holies and the way in which these are, they were depicted in the, on the veil of the temple and on other places where their pictures were um, placed. They were imposing um, a lion-like and uh, fierce-looking creatures. They were the guardians of the very throne of God. Look at the picture of the angelic creatures that Ezekiel beheld. It gripped his soul with fear in chapter 1 of the book of Ezekiel. But perhaps the fact that they were clothed in white has sort of guarded the sense of dread in the presence of these angels. But that's what she sees. She sees these two angels sitting, and they're in white. And they're poised in the very place where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. What are they doing there? What does this position at the head and feet tell us of the scene? What does it all represent? What does it all mean? I mean, I'm sure these details are not told us for no reason. There's something we should be deriving from their presence. There's something we should be deriving through even their posture. And I rather think the fact that they were sitting in the tomb with Jesus is that they were operating along the principles of what sometimes they call the guardian angels. And again, those guardian angels are not just, uh, you know, light and uh, unthreatening beings. I mean, they were like the seraphim. Their place was to guard the throne room of the king. This is the... the, An oriental emperor would have imposing guards, uh, full... Uh, uh, armament and weaponry to to repel repel any invader to to protect the good and well-being of the king so in God's temple you have such seraphim and the interesting thing is that those seraphim were at each side of the presence the God who was above the mercy seat in the temple was guarded not that God needs guards just the opposing picture that was there just God's telling us something about himself he's telling us something about his heavenly throne he's telling us something about his, his, his likeness in terms of something greater more imposing, more glorious more worthy of honor and praise and worship than you would see in the presence of any of the great... Empress of all of the Orient, whether it's the emperor of, of, of Egypt, the pharaoh, whether it's the emperor of the Assyrians or the Babylonians, God is the true king. He's the everlasting king. And as great and as imposing as the throne rooms would be of any earthly king, the throne room of this God, even in a tent. And you think about it, it was a movable tent that went from place to place where that first picture of God's presence in the midst of Israel was found. There was an opposing presence of these angels that guarded the presence of the Holy of Holies and guarded the presence of the Holy of Holies to keep every intruder out who had no business being in that place so close to the throne of the King. The fact that these angels are present in the tomb with Jesus is that Jesus was not without the presence of heaven within that tomb. Even when his body rested in the tomb on the seventh day On the Jewish Sabbath, there was the presence of the heavenly host, or the heavenly beings, with him, protecting him, guarding his body. You didn't need Roman guards outside to make sure nobody came and took him away. You didn't need a stone that would be brought to the tomb and its opening. Heaven himself guarded the presence of Jesus until the time of his resurrection took place. And then within the reality of that entombed location, no eyes upon Jesus when he's raised from the dead. You think of Jesus coming forth from the tomb. Again, the God-man, the true humanity that he possessed. Think of a true man, a true human, human body and soul that experiences the ravages of death, experiences the pain of misery, of crucifixion. And yet, coming forth in power and newness of life, in a resurrection, I think that no eye would be upon it. No one to celebrate joyously. There were other rational beings in that tomb with Jesus when he came to life again and in the presence of the angels of God with joy. Must have been seen. Remember Jesus tells his disciples. In chapter 15 of Luke. That there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. Over one sinner who repents. What must have been the joyous celebration within the tomb. When Jesus emerged. Into newness of life. In the presence of the angels of God. And hence there is no wonder. That when Mary stoops down. And Mary looks in. And Mary sees these angels. That they say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Don't angels understand? This is this is a, a grave. Don't angels enter in with some measure of compassion to a scene of grief, to a scene of... Separation and devastation. This woman had lost a loved one. They know she had not. They know that Jesus had been raised. Mary, if you had only known the truth. There's no grounds for weeping. Weep no more. The Lord has risen. There's no grounds for sadness. Sadness. when the reality of resurrection life had come and Jesus' body had been raised though the grave is a place for tears this grave is, has no place for tears Mary's response to these angels and I can't help but think they're rejoicing angels and and they have no understanding of why women would be grieving for Jesus when Jesus is risen But but Mary endeavors to explain she said to them they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him she has no hope of resurrection just yet no knowledge that such a thing had taken place or would take place again she's not the one with the faith and hope that Peter and John seem to possess but she's the one who loves and she's the one who recognizes there's a need here his body needs to be tended to his body needs to be honored his body needs to be cared for Love infused her heart, and she cannot rest until she knew where her Lord had been laid. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said that, in explanation to the angels, and then she turns around and something else meets her eyes. She saw Jesus standing. There's only one problem at this point. She didn't know that it was Jesus. So Jesus appears to her. We're into the third point now the appearance of Jesus. But it's an appearance that she does not know was Jesus now a lot of people try to account for the fact that Mary didn't recognize him oh she's just crying the tears were so much in her eyes that she just couldn't see it was really Jesus I don't think that's what accounts for the lack of recognition I think it's the mysterious nature of resurrection life what happens in resurrection life is that there's a power of God that's at work that is transforming and that even in a sense far exceeds what the creation itself brought about. Because again, it's working against the contrary force of death. Death has entered in. Death has taken place. The body of Jesus is dead. All his life processes have ended. Perhaps it's been the beginning of some measure of the solidifying of his blood and other things that would take place when a death takes place. And now there's the remedy of all of that coming against the active presence of true death. And yet a power is unleashed in the tomb in which the body of Jesus comes back to full powers of operation and yet also in a manner of life existence that's able to enter in to an eternal existence in the presence of God. And who knows what in the world that involves? I know that Paul speaks of it as a body that when you die it's sown in corruption it's raised in incorruption. It's sown a body that's a a mortal body. It's raised incorruptible. This transformation that took place. Then it's an interesting thing that Jesus echoes the words of the angels. Woman, why are you weeping? Again, if you knew the reality of what God's done, you would not be weeping you'd be rejoicing but Jesus not only repeats the question to the angels he repeats his own question to his disciples in chapter 1 whom are you seeking whom are you seeking I'm seeking a dead man you're not going to find a dead man here But supposing him to be the gardener, we're told, and this is a reasonable supposition, she's in a garden tomb. But the fact of a garden tomb and a garden resurrection, I think, is transposed upon the reality that it was a garden scene that brought death into the world. It's in the Garden of Eden the man carried out his rebellion against God and that death first entered into the world and it's in a garden that life comes that the curse of death is removed that life and resurrection power comes into into view death is overcome death is destroyed but the power of resurrection life begun in Jesus the first fruits of all who are raised from the dead and then the fact is that Jesus is at work as one who through new, the power of a new creation plants a new Eden he brings in a new covenant he blesses with new birth and new life and again making all things new to where the new heavens and new earth is pictured in the book of Revelation as a renewed garden in which the rivers run through it the gold is abounding the precious metals and the renewed creation comes into full view in a garden sanctuary in which Jesus is the, te- the temple of the place and so though she mistakes him for the gardener in fact he is one who comes to plant his church comes to bring in a new olive tree a new Israel through the work of new creations unleashed in the world by the power of the gospel Mary says sir if you've carried him away tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away Of course, at this point, Mary's desires are good, but the need is not present. Jesus' body has no need of Mary taking him away, providing him another burial pot somewhere else where he'd be safer. She desired to give him an honorable burial, but his, his body has already, in and through death, Born away, something greater. It's not just the body that needs to be born away. It's the sin of the world that needs to be born away. What needs to be removed in a fallen world is the guilt of our transgressions. Jesus discharged the dead in full. Jesus paid the price in full, so that death has no longer dominion over him. He can't be held by death. He's raised in a glorified body. Not in need of Mary's care. But now in a resurrected body that reigns and rules at the right hand of the majesty of God caring for all the Marys of the world. Caring for all of His people throughout the world to be the faithful mediator between God and man to serve His people through His never ending life as they live their lives in this world as they die their death in this world that all of it is to be lived unto him, we're to die unto him and he is the one who is our, the one who is our provider, we're not his he's not in need of us to provide for him we're in need of him to be providing for us Mary's recognition of Jesus comes about as Jesus utters our name, Mary Again, I think, as I mentioned last week, I think this really goes along with Jesus saying that He calls out His sheep by name. They hear His voice. They follow Him. It's not so much that we see Jesus in the flesh. We do not. And He's going to go on to tell Thomas, you know, you're blessed that you've seen, but blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. But ultimately, faith does not have to do with what we see. It's not that we see the resurrected Lord of glory. It's not just the sight because again, people could see and not believe. see is not believing in the biblical worldview. The devils see, the devils know, and they tremble. It's faith that comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We hear the voice of Jesus speaking to us in his word, He's calling us out by name, calling us to himself. And it's the voice of Christ that's the compelling power that brings recognition, that brings illumination, that brings understanding. So she turns to him and she says my teacher my teacher and again her heart's attitude is I'll never be parted from him again wouldn't that be your attitude? You thought you lost your Lord, now you found him again. You thought he was gone, now he's here. You thought it was all over but look at what this before my eyes. And what do you do? You look to grab on for life and say, I will never ever allow you to leave my sight again. So Jesus has to say to her, Mary, get a grip, not on me, on yourself. Don't cling to me. I'm not staying. I'm not remaining. It's not like before when I was in the house and in Judea and I brought my disciples to dwell with me there I will go in and out among them for a period of 40 days but his purpose is not to remain his purpose is to validate the reality of his resurrection in their presence so that they would be eyewitnesses and ear witnesses of the resurrected Lord again you go back to the book of Acts when they're choosing another disciple to take the place of Judas that's what was required is that one has to come among us to be the complement of the twelve, the full twelve, who would be eyewitnesses of the resurrection? And then he does Bible study with them too. That's another thing. He prepares them for this ministry that is before them. You see, in chapter uh, later on in chapter twenty, he breathes on them. Says, "Receive the Holy Spirit." He equips them, prepares them for the labors that they were to be doing. He gives them comfort in the midst of their dashed hearts and distressed souls as he does to Peter at the Sea of Galilee in chapter 21. So he has a purpose to remain but not to stay, not to stay. Don't get greedy about his presence. It's best for you and me that he's gone to the Father. It's best that he is mediating between God and man in the place of the divine presence We don't lose out because the divine presence comes to us by the third person of the Trinity who comes to indwell us as the Holy Spirit is given to us. It's best that he goes to the Father. Tell my brethren, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Kind of thinking maybe Father's Day, I might preach on that passage. Just the way Jesus speaks of God as His Father in one respect and as our Father I think in another respect. He doesn't say our Father. He doesn't say our Father. Oh, the Lord's Prayer says our Father. Yeah, but Jesus says when you pray say our Father. He doesn't include us in the like relation. I mean a like relationship, a similar relationship, but it's not the same. It's not the same. My God and your God. My Father and your Father. Go tell my brethren. Go tell them that's exactly what Mary does she went now she can leave now she can leave the tomb she knows her Lord does, no, does not need her services does not need her protection over his body does not need to be reburied in some other place he lives and she announced to the disciples I've seen the Lord and he, she tells them the things that he had said it's always good to see the first preachers of the resurrection the women (laughs) because again I think evangelicals tend to not value the witness of the women as we should and here in the scriptures we're told that they have a legitimate place of bearing testimony a legitimate place of speaking forth the gospel there are the Aquilas and there are the Priscilla's and sometimes the Priscilla's are very very gifted women and Mary Magdalene the early church fathers, many of them called her the apostle to the apostles, she's the sent one Jesus sends her to go through the apostles and tell them that the Lord has risen just in conclusion there's three things that are I think of real importance as we move away from this passage and that is just to marvel at the brilliance of the biblical narrative, the way in which the scriptures are presented to us that really does captivate our imagination to see something of the unity of the ministry of Jesus and the fullness of it as tending towards a new creation just by the way John lays out its material. The Bible has endless fascinations for us, folks. And I really fear that we live in a day that we more and more are seeing people in the church being illiterate about basic Bible content. We're just not thinking about the Bible enough. We're just not having it before our minds there really does need to be a reception of God's Word, a prayerful reception of God's Word, of thinking through its issues. And we live in a day that we have access to so many Bible helps. Just turn on your computer. If We could turn away from looking at the news or looking at the stock prices or looking at the sports or to get tuning in to hours upon hours of streaming content of entertainment to just begin to focus upon what should be our great delight, to delight in the law of the Lord. Lord day and night what would unfold to us what would unfold before our eyes about basic Bible content that will take our breath away I'm really convinced of it the more you search the scriptures the more you study the scriptures we just not come anywhere close to having a full appreciation of all that God has spoken read the Bible with expectation read the Bible with a sense of anticipation God has riches to unfold to me through His Word. Come to church waiting to get amazed, waiting to have the Bible opened up before our minds that we can go out as we leave and say how our hearts burned within us. As we learn more and more about what saith our God, how He has spoken to us in the riches, in the beauty in the order in the amazing realities set forth to us in his great and holy word how many of you thought there were the days of creation found of a new creation found in John parallel to the days of creation in the Old Testament I didn't put it there it's there it's there it's there it's just we haven't uncovered it maybe we be a people that are always looking to uncover dig deeper to see more and more of what God has for us in his word and then folks we are people that more than often than not will tend to be imitators of the Marys at the tomb weeping there's so much to weep about there's so much evil that's in the world to weep about there's so much death in the world to weep about there's so much horrors around us to weep about. And I'd say, if all that's all you see, yeah, you're right. But folks, that's not all to be seen. It's not all to be seen. And because what we can see in and through the power of the gospel of a risen and glorified Lord is so far superior to any of the misery that sin has brought into the world, And we want to carry away the sins, don't we? But we can't. We can't carry away the bodies to save places. But we can look to one who has carried away truly the miseries of the world and the sin of the world through his death that atones and his death that reconciles, his death that brings us unto God. And to see the world as an exciting place to live in, as redeemed people, as a glorious place to live in, as people that are forgiven as people that are reconciled to God we have so much to say to the world so much to offer the world in terms of our prayers in terms of our service that be a miserable downcast disheartened believer seems to me just is to not reflect upon what scripture tells us this gospel actually produces it's just the joy of angels how much more you and I who are the direct recipients of the grace of the gospel. To be a people that rejoice, not in the horrors of the world, but rejoice in God's solution to the horrors of the world. That God has actually conquered death in His Son. He's overcome sin. He's borne it away. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's live in the light of that. Let's learn to be joyful Christians. We have a right to be. We have a reason to be. It's not just looking to give you a pep talk. You ought to be happy people, optimistic people. Folks, the point is this grounds for biblical hope. This grounds for Bible optimism. This grounds to walk in this world not as crushed people, but confident people. Knowing who and what we are as the redeemed of the Lord, living to love our God and to love others and to serve them in His name. Let's be a kingdom-oriented people that show forth the kingdom that is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Then the final thing is just related to it. I think the more joyful we are as a people, the more prone we'll be to announce. The more prone we'll be to tell what we know. The more prone we'll be To speak forth the riches of his kindness towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think one of the things that causes our tongues so often to be silent is that we're just not fully aware of the glory of it all, of the riches of it all. It's hard to contain someone who's fully aware of what we possess in the Lord Jesus. It becomes evident in our prayer life it becomes evident in our relationship to others. It becomes evident when people are coming up to us and saying, look, I notice you live in the midst of a very desp- distressed world, and you're living like there's no tomorrow. What's what's the reason for your optimism? What's the reason for your confidence? What's the reason for your hope? And when I was in the military, and I lived in the barracks among um, a lot of ungodly people, they either hated me or else they came to me and say, you know, what makes you different? But people notice it. They notice when we live in the power of the grace of the gospel. We live in the light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Um, and, and then we have proximity to them. Um, they can, you, you don't have to go far to be having an audience that will listen to you. Because people will want to know why you the way that you are and then, you know, I think of how often I preach to people in my family and they just turn me off but my wife, though, just gracious, loving, smiling it's one who attracts everybody to her I'm the one that repels everybody away she's the one that attracts everything to her when the time comes for her to talk and I'm sitting there saying they're not going to listen to her and I notice they do, they listen to her her words have authority because she walks in the power of the Lord she walks by the power of God, the Spirit of God and if we all knew that, there would be no, no problem with re- witnessing, no problem telling forth the riches of his grace and kindness. It would be something that would come most natural. And it was something that would come, would come with credibility as well. It's not just, well, you're the preacher, so you're supposed to preach. It's just that you're just telling forth the things you've seen and heard and know and are convinced of, and then becomes very genuine and very real and very much born of the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be pleased to bless our, these thoughts, and let's go to him then in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time we can contemplate what great things you've done for us in your Son, what great revelation you've given of those very events in the Gospel of John. We pray that something of what we've seen this morning would uh, would captivate our imaginations, captivate our our hearts and our minds, that we might live more fully in the light of your great grace and salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord Jesus, you would come to each of us in the power of your livingness. Show us more of yourself and more of your glory. Give us more of a heart that rejoices with joy unspeakable and full of glory at the things we know and have seen about such a great Savior and such a great salvation. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your people